this morning. It's the third week of our series we're calling A Case for Christianity. This weekend, two weeks from today, next Sunday is Mother's Day, and I will talk about mothers on Mother's Day. Can't, can't skip the opportunity to uh, talk about one of our favorite people in each of our lives, which is our mother. But this weekend, in two weeks, after the week after Mother's Day, we're going to look at some of the objections that people have about uh, what we would call, most of us would call, our faith. And you certainly must be aware that the Christian faith is heavily criticized in our world today by academics and entertainers and comedians and just anybody that you, uh, you want to mention. The term Christian, and especially if you, if you put the word fundamental in front of that, because the word fundamental has kind of a bad connotation these days, uh, has become synonymous with closed-minded and ignorant and obnoxious and overbearing, and some of us are, by the way, all of those things, uh, and we shouldn't be any of those things. But as a result, just because of the bad connotation, sometimes there are many people who never consider the message of the Bible. Uh, and sometimes we Christians just kind of cringe over in a corner somewhere because we're not aware uh, of the support that we have for that. I said in week number one of our study that God doesn't want us to believe blindly. He wants us to believe, but he wants us to also look at evidence and be convinced that he is God. He is the very God of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, always and ever-present, and that the Bible is his word of communication to us today. Consider this statement if you will, as I, as I search for a way to communicate with you, faith goes beyond evidence, but it is supported by evidence. Faith isn't all about evidence. We make a leap beyond that. It goes beyond evidence, but faith is supported by evidence, and that's really what we're talking about for these few weeks. In the past couple of weeks, we identified the Christian discipline of apologetics, and then we talked about why I believe in the Bible, the New Testament, is it fact or fiction? And we looked at some things like the historical reliability, textual evidence, uh, stood the test of time, it works. Last week, we talked about why I believe in Jesus. He's either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Uh, a couple of weeks uh, from now, we're going to look at, does it matter what you believe? What is truth, anyway? And how can we determine what truth is? Today's subject is this, answering objections to Christianity. We're going to talk about contradictions and controversies. With that in mind, uh, we're going to examine this. Three of the most common objections to the Bible, the first one being this, the Bible is just full of contradictions. Just, you know, just contradicts itself on every page. All sorts of inaccuracies in the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about reasons why you can trust the New Testament to be reliable in its accounts of the life, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what about the rest of the Bible? What about the Old Testament? What about Genesis and, uh, and, and Malachi? You know, what about those books in the Old Testament? If you believe what some people say, you'll get the idea that the Bible is just full of contradictions and historical fabrications and archaeological errors, things that continually come in conflict with what is commonly known to be true. The fact is, the way that most people who tell you the Bible is full of contradictions can't really name one, uh, but uh, they, they just know that it's there because they've heard about it uh, all of their life. I, I, I read a testimony by a college professor who happened to be a Christian and who was trying to witness to a guy uh, who just stopped him and said, look, I, I don't believe the Bible. It's full of mistakes and contradictions, and I believe King James must have been drunk the day he wrote it. 
Uh, you know, if, if you just have to look at that whole thing to see the ignorance that's involved in it. There are, however, some people who have studied Scripture enough to know at least that the specific passages seem to be in contradiction with each other or in contradiction with science or in contradiction with historical fact. Uh, and uh, it, as we deal with this, and you know, there's stuff to be dealt with. You can't just act like it doesn't exist. As we deal with these apparent contradictions and inaccuracies in scriptures, there are a few principles that we should keep in mind. Uh, in, uh, in his book that I happen to have, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, he gives a number of principles for understanding apparent discrepancies. The first one that he mentions is this, the unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. You're not going to understand everything you read every time you read it. And there's going to be some stuff that's going to come up that causes you to draw back and say, wow, how can this be true and that uh, be true? Uh, the unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. Somebody has probably studied it in the past. I'm not going to go through all these, but number 10 on the list is this. The Bible uses non-technical everyday language. The Bible was not written for engineers. The Bible was written for you. Now, you may be an engineer. There may be an engineer in, in the bunch, but, but most of us are not there. And one more thing I'm just going to mention for the sake of illustration is number, principle number 11 that McDowell mentions, which is this. The Bible may use round numbers as well as exact numbers. Now, I bring that up because people do criticize numbers uh, that exist in the Bible. A number of years ago, I read an editorial uh, in the Pensacola News Journal that was entitled, God Needs an Abacus. You know, an abacus is, a, is an ancient method of, of computing numbers. And this guy uh, who wrote in said this, I'm a critic of the Holy Bible who has read it in its entirety. I've read the whole Bible. Take a good look at 1 Kings 7.23, and we will. Sure enough, pi is given as exactly three. Granted, God may be omniscient and all that entails, but he really should have used an abacus uh, and figured it out. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 23, the author is describing a large bronze basin that, sits, that sat in front of Solomon's temple where the, uh, the, the priest would ceremonially wash themselves before they went inside. 1 Kings chapter 7 verse 23 says, and he made the sea... Now, this thing was so big, they called it the sea, uh, but it's just a big bronze basin, right? He made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. Now, a lot of times we say a cubit is 18 inches, but we really don't know exactly how big a cubit is. And, uh, so he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other brim, so it would have uh, a, uh, a, a, a radius, right, of, uh, of 10 cubits. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And I just bring this in, verse 26, it says it was a hand breadth thick. Now, I don't know how wide your hand is, but my hand is about four inches wide, and a hand breadth would vary based on uh, how big it is. A cubit at one time was the length of a, man, uh, of a man's arm from the tip of his middle finger to his elbow and that would vary based on the man right so if you were buying you'd want to be a big man if you were selling you'd want to be a small man but uh, this guy that wrote into the news journal uh, said uh, I'm, I reject the Bible 
I don't believe that God is real. I don't believe in Jesus Christ because if you use this and you compute what modern mathematicians say the value of pi is, it is incorrect. Therefore, God didn't know what he was doing. Now, pi, and we've all heard of pi, right? It's not the kind you eat. We've all heard of pi. Pi is the numerical relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle. I said radius a while ago. I should have said diameter. Mathematicians have determined that that relationship to be, and let's see, there's the, there is the value of pi right there, 3.14159265353 and so on and so forth. I got that from a website, by the way, that traced the value of pi out 100,000 characters. So this website would give you three point and then 100,000 characters after that because pi is what's called an irrational number. <clears throat> that is, you don't ever come to the end of it, right? You can't say exactly what it is. It's a relationship. And so every value of pi is an approximate value. Furthermore, when we look back at this, uh, this era of time, by the way, they didn't have decibel notation. They had cubits and hands breadths and half cubits and half hands breadths and things of that nature. Now, <clears throat> here's the perceived problem, if you care about it at all. This guy did. If you divide the circumference of the laver, by the way, let's have the, the uh, uh, if you took uh, mathematics in high school, you know that C, circumference, either equals pi times D. That's the relationship. The circumference of a circle is 3.14159265, so forth, times the diameter of the circle. Therefore, if you divide the circumference by the diameter, you get the value of pi. This is 30 cubits divided by 10 cubits, which says the value of pi would be 3. But no, it's not 3 at all. It's 3.1. Uh, and therefore, God is not true. And the Bible is not true. Jesus didn't really come to earth. You know, there is no omniscient, omnipresent God and things of that nature. Well, a uh, couple things about that. Number one, Principle number 11 that we read a while ago said the Bible may use both round numbers as well as exact numbers. Round numbers are often used in ancient as well as modern literature. Not everybody uh, figures the value of pi out 100,000 characters. In addition to that, maybe they were measuring the inside diameter rather than the outside diameter. And if you took the, uh, if you took the uh, the, the, uh, inside, the outside diameter to be 10 cubits and you subtracted two hands breadths and you came out to about 9.55 cubits and all of a sudden you get the exact value uh, of pi that you want. Now, I realize that doesn't make any sense to some of you and it doesn't make any difference to the rest of you, but can you see how ridiculous it is to say, well, I looked at this passage of Scripture uh, and this ancient description of this ancient uh, basin and the, the numbers don't seem exactly right to me. They don't fit modern mathematics. Therefore, I'm going to throw the whole Bible out. I'm going to throw God out. I'm going to throw Jesus out. I'm going to throw everything that's good out. Well, there are explanations for stuff like that. That's just one little teeny thing. I bring it up because it was in the news journal. Because some guy wrote into the news journal and said, I reject God because of this. Actually, there are not hundreds of mistakes in the Bible. But there are verses of Scripture that cause people confusion. It caused you confusion. They cause me confusion when I read them sometimes. And so when you read the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is God really saying here and what does this really mean? 
When a scientist discovers what appears to be a contradiction in science, he doesn't say, well, that's it. Science can't possibly be true. I'm going to throw all science out because I don't understand how this thing and that thing uh, can relate to each other. <clears throat> I've heard people criticize uh, the resurrection stories, for instance, because they say, well, uh, Matthew's account of the resurrection gives these details, and Mark's account of the resurrection gives these details, and Luke's account gives these details, and they're not the same details, therefore they must be made up. Well, uh, they don't contradict each other, they complement each other. One gives things that the other does not give. I read about, uh, <clears throat> I don't remember reading this article, but back when uh, President Bush number two was president, he gave a speech uh, to the nation regarding stem cell research. You know, it's one of those things where all the cameras were on him and, and it was a very important thing uh, in 2001. Times, Time Magazine and Newsweek both covered this. They gave different details about the speech. Time mentioned some things that Newsweek didn't mention. Newsweek mentioned some things that Time didn't mention. That doesn't mean they contradicted each other, except for the fact that Newsweek said the speech was 12 minutes long and Time said the speech was 11 minutes long. And neither uh, uh, article mentioned the exact date on which the speech was given, which was August the 9th, 2001. Uh, does that mean that <clears throat> the president didn't really ever give the speech? this important speech that we all know that, uh, that he gave uh, uh, because one said it was 11 minutes long, the other said it was 12 minutes long. No, it, it could just mean that one reporter checked his, his uh, watch uh, when uh, the, the president first went live and the other uh, looked at his watch when the president first started speaking. Or it could mean that the speech was 11 and a half minutes long and one guy rounded it down and the next guy rounded it up. You see what I'm talking about? These kinds of things don't mean anything as far as, as, uh, uh, as uh, uh, inspiration or not inspiration, right or wrong, accurate or not accurate. There's a reasonable <clears throat> explanation for every apparent contradiction in Scripture. And I have referred to uh, a guy uh, pre previously, I uh, happen to have his book on the front row, I'm not going to pick it up and show it to you, but if you'd like to look at it, you can. Uh, a theologian and apologist by the name of Norman Geisler who wrote a book called When Critics Ask, in which he examines and resolves most of the supposed contradictions in Scripture. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, there are books out there av available. What's amazing about the Bible is that time and time again it has been proven accurate in areas which experts were sure it was wrong. Archaeological finds support it. Geological, political uh, finds, uh, anthropological finds support what Scripture says. One of my favorite ones actually took place in some of my historical past. Uh, the Bible mentions a group of people called the Hittites. The Hittites uh, for, for years a historian said, yeah, the Bible's accurate. That's one of those made-up stories. There's no such people as the Hittites. Nobody could have been this well-known, this big, had this powerful, and not be known by current uh, archaeological discovery and, and uh, historical knowledge. But the fact of the matter is that archaeologists in Turkey did discover eventually that the, Hitt the Hittites actually exist and that the Bible was accurate. I could give you some other examples such as 
uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, who refers to a guy by the name of Lysanias as the Tetrarch of Abilene in 27 AD. And scholars said, no, that can't possibly be true. He actually, he actually was in a different place 50 years before, so Luke didn't know what he was talking about. And then later, an inscription saying, yes, there was a Lysanias uh, who was in Abilene in the same time Luke said he was. There happened to be two guys that had the same name. You know, those kinds of things come up over and over again. But when it comes to questions about contradictions in the Bible, I, of course, always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. The rule of fairness is applied to other ancient documents. It's not always just assumed that an ancient document is incorrect when you read it. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should ignore difficult passages or pretend that they don't exist. I'm just saying uh, 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 investigate them further and do it with an objective, fair mind when you do. The Bible is, in fact, an amazing book. Think about this. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. That's a long time. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. Uh, as many as 40 different authors in Scripture from diverse social and economic backgrounds, and yet there is a consistency in the Scripture, and yet throughout all 66 books, it tells the same story of God's love for the human race. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to love. It teaches us how to know God. It teaches us how to find happiness. It teaches us so much more. And when you take a look at the Bible like that, when I do, instead of being an obstacle to faith, it becomes a reason for my faith because I see the hand of God in Scripture. The Bible is full of contradictions. Well, it's full of things that need some explanation, but contradictions, no. Here's the second thing, three most common objections of, to the Bible. The second one is this, the Bible presents an unenlightened worldview. The Bible demeans women. And the Bible promotes war and slavery, and therefore a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with it. It demeans women, it promotes war, and promotes slavery. Now, first of all, let's just start with this statement right here. There's a difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible endorses. God is honest in Scripture. When some of his number one people, his number one men and women, do terrible things, it gets recorded in the Bible. There are no perfect people. God records the good stuff as well as the bad stuff in his word. And just because God records something doesn't mean that, that he endorses it. Uh, for instance, there was King David, one of God's number one guys. Uh, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. He committed adultery. He lied. He committed murder. Doesn't mean we're supposed to do that. Peter, one of God's number one guys in the New Testament cursed and swore that he never had seen Christ before, denied Jesus. Doesn't mean that God wants us to do those kinds of things. Now, the Bible makes reference to slaves and masters, but nowhere does it say that it's God's will or that God wants any person to own another person. As a matter of fact, in New Testament, Paul made a radical statement in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul said this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, God values all of us exactly the same. 
He doesn't care what country you're from. He doesn't care about your nationality or your race. He doesn't care about your social status. Your value to God is the same. In our country, the abolitionist movement was propelled by these Christian thoughts and by Christian people. In the 18th century, about 100 years before slavery ended in the United States, the great Methodist reformer John Wesley said this, had your father, have you, has any man living a right to use another as a slave? It cannot be. Liberty is the right of every human creature as soon as he breathes vital air. No human law can, can, can deprive him of that right. Today, uh, you know, slavery is abolished in our country. But slavery exists in different countries in the world. But I don't think it exists. To my knowledge, it doesn't exist in any country that's considered to be predominantly Christian. In fact, slavery tends to thrive in countries that are most noted for their opposition and, uh, to Christianity. When Paul told slaves in the New Testament, be obedient to their masters. He wasn't condoning slavery. He was just acknowledging the fact that slavery had always exist, existed. Paul didn't know when slavery might come to an end, if it would ever come to an end. By the way, slavery has always existed and slavery is always going to exist. I'm not condoning it. I think we should outlaw it, uh, all those kind of things. But it continues to exist, even though in our minds uh, it doesn't. But but Paul knew, uh, Paul knew that it existed. He didn't say that it was right, but he said within this context, do this, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9, and you masters, do the same things to them, uh, that is to your, your servants, your slaves, giving, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, Paul is saying no matter what your relationship is within the social structure of your country you treat that other person with respect even if that other person happens to be your slave even if that other person legally belongs to you in this culture you treat that person with respect and as it turns out the teachings that paul planted the seed for resulted in our nation recognizing every human's right for freedom the bible is not pro-slavery just because it mentions slavery and even because even because it tries to regulate slavery to make it better for slaves. The same can be said about the Bible's view of women. A couple of weeks ago, uh, or, or longer, I can't remember, I, I mentioned uh, part of my experience uh, working on a master's degree in medieval history at the University of South Florida in Tampa. One of the classes that I took, and I can't remember exactly when it was, but one of the classes that I took was called The Medieval View of Men and Women. Or maybe it was the medieval view of women and men. I can't remember exactly which way that went. But uh, the class only met 12 times. It was a quarterly, and it was, it was four hours once a week is the way we did that. It was an evening class. And one of those 12 classes, of course, part of it was designated to writing papers and you know, final exams and so forth. But one of those classes uh, was completely devoted to what the Bible says about men and women. On that particular night, I knew good and well that there would be nobody else in the class that owned a Bible or knew anything about the Bible. So I boxed up every Bible I could find in our house and in my office, and I took it to class. Uh, and there was like just 12 or 14 of us. It wasn't, it wasn't a big class. And um, uh, I, I, hand, I gave a Bible to everybody that I could. I don't think I had 12 or 14, but I think I had enough that everybody had a Bible to, uh, 
to look on. And uh, sure enough, nobody else had one. Nobody else cared to have one. Nobody else had even read much about the Bible. They just all knew that the Bible was against women, that the Bible demeaned women. And, and, so, uh, by, and by the way, that particular night, the instructor uh, uh, conveniently left his notes at home and asked me to take the class. And uh, so I, it was my job to, to take them through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and point out things that the Bible had to say about men and women in the relationship between men and women. It became pretty much a night of attacking me and the Apostle Paul. Now, uh, I felt like I was in really good comp company, you know, that I was in the same company as the Apostle Paul was. But, uh, and I can remember in particular, you know, I had my Bible, I had my preaching Bible there with me, and I had underlined some things. And, and when we got to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, you know, uh, verse 22, husbands, uh, submit yourselves to your wives, you know, as unto the Lord. And, and uh, I can always, this, this young woman was looking over at my scripture, she said, he's got that one underlined in red. Look, 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 he's got that one underlined in red. Well, you know, uh, there's different reasons that you underline passages of scripture, but I remember that quite well. And, and, and here's what I also know, anyone knows that you can yank a couple of verses of Scripture out of context and support virtually any notion that you have. But to say that the Bible is demeaning to women is not a fair representation of what Scripture says. Remember, there's a difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible endorses. In the New Testament, Jesus and Paul treated women with a sense of dignity, respect, and equality that defied the cultural norm. The cultural norm was that women were possessions like slaves or cattle. A man could not be arrested for spousal abuse. He could divorce uh, for spousal abuse, excuse me. He could divorce his wife uh, for almost anything. A woman could be executed for adultery and the man let go, uh, although that was not the law of Moses, by the way. The law of Moses said both of them should be executed, but that's not the way it was applied. Women were not allowed to testify in trials. Women weren't allowed to worship with men. Men had this, the, the uh, preferred place of worship and women had a secondary place. It was in this, uh, cl this cultural climate that Christianity was born and yet Jesus came and treated women in a way they had never been treated. He taught them. Remember that story where Jesus went into the home of Mary and Martha and Martha's cooking and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus? Only men did that. In that culture, only men. Only men sat at the feet of a rabbi uh, to, li to listen. But Jesus taught Mary just like he taught uh, the others. He defied, the cust defied custom and healed the woman in Mark chapter 5 who had been bleeding internally for years. He defied custom and engaged a foreign woman in conversation in John chapter 4. In Luke chapter 8, we see that he brought women into his inner circle of influence. In Luke chapter 13, he referred to a woman as a daughter of Abraham. Men, uh, Jewish men were regularly considered sons of Abraham, but nobody ever called uh, a woman the daughter of Abraham because that implied equal status between men and women. We see the same attitude elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, the apostle Paul refers to a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, teaching the Word of God to a young 
orator by the name of Apollos. So you had a woman being involved in that. Acts chapter 21 refers to four women who prophesied. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, Peter, quoting from the Old Testament, state that, that God had promised to pour out, pour out His Spirit and that your sons and daughters shall prophesy. We see this attitude in the Apostle Paul. Uh, Romans chapter 16, he refers to a, a woman by the name as a servant of the church in Kentria and refers to Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, refers to a Pr Priscilla as one of his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In Colossians chapter 4, he talks about a woman uh, who had, who's had a church meeting in her house. In Philippians chapter 4, my, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, he talks about Euodias and Syntyche, two women. He says, women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement, also another well-known preacher, and the rest of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These were significant steps uh, for the role and status of women in society. Had it not been for what cr the Christian church boldly proclaimed, and that was Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Had it not been for that, maybe the role of women would never have, have gained the status that it is now, or at least not as quickly. Look at predominantly non-Christian cultures today. How, how are women treated there? Not as well as they're treated in Christian cultures. People who want to, quote unquote, keep women in their place can misquote Scripture if they want to, but it is not the intention of Scripture. It doesn't mean, by the way, that everything about men and women are the same and that we don't have different roles to play and stuff like that, but when God looks down, he's, whether it's man, woman, whether it's, it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's slave or free, He sees us all of equal value. People who say the Bible is an outdated book simply aren't familiar with it or aren't in tune with it. Throughout the century, it has challenged all human beings to treat all other human beings with respect and dignity. That doesn't mean there isn't a cause for war sometimes. It doesn't mean there isn't a cause for punishment sometimes. It doesn't mean there isn't a cause for execution sometimes. But the Bible has always preached respect and dignity for others. It's another reason why instead of being an obstacle to my faith, the Bible is a reason for it. One more thing. Three three of the most common objections to the Bible. The third thing is this. The Bible commands me to do things I don't want to do. Well, you finally hit on one that's true. <laughs> finally hit on one that's true. Bible commands me to do things I don't want to do. The Bible does that. The Bible challenges us to love people that we don't find lovable. Challenges us to forgive people that we do not feel deserve our forgiveness. It, it challenges us to abandon sin that we kind of enjoy. It, it, it challenges us to do our jobs with integrity when the boss is unfair. It, it challenges us to keep our word even when it hurts. The reason for this is not because God wants to suck all the joy out of life. The reason is because He wants to put joy into your life. God wants you and he wants me, wants all of us to live life to the fullest. Here's what Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 10 and verse 10. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The reason that Jesus came was to give us real life and so that we could live this life 
in all its fullness. God knows more about joyful living than anybody else does. If I try to live by the standard of doing only what I want to do, it just creates failure and misery in my life. Think about this, if you will. The laws and principles of Scripture are put there for a reason. And that reason is that we might experience life in all its fullness. Some things might seem restrictive. Uh, some things you don't want to do that Scripture says. But everything that God puts in Scripture is so that your life will be more enjoyable, so that your life will be more full. Some people ask me questions like, what's wrong with premarital sex? Is it really that big a deal? I mean, God gave us the equipment. Or why should a couple who don't love each other any longer stay married? Why not just get divorced? Why, why just kill yourself working at it? Or why should I forgive someone who has cheated me, somebody who has wronged me? And I'll say this, the reason for all those things, the reason for sexual purity, the reason for staying in a marriage and working on things, the reason for forgiving those who have wronged you and doing everything else God ever said that's hard to do is simply this. And this may seem self-serving, but simply this, it's in our best interests to obey God. It's in our best interest, even though we can't see how sometimes. It's in our best interest to do what God tells us to do. I said that might sound self-serving. Self-serving attitude is something that when I do it, I don't care about anybody else. It only benefits me. But when we obey God, everybody benefits. When I obey God, I experience God's joy in my life. When I obey God, Others experience God's love expressed through me. When I obey God, he gets the glory. And so obeying God's good for everybody, doing the right thing. Now, this objection, God commands me to do things that I don't want to do, has a part objection, and that is this. I don't think I can do it. I just don't think I can. I can't live up to that, you know. God is asking more than I can possibly do. I mean, I want to do some of that stuff, but man, I, it's just too hard. And I will say, on your own, you can't do it. And you're going to fall short on a continual basis. Everybody does. It's not an excuse. It's just everybody does. But God has promised to help you. God has promised to give you his strength so that you can live the life he has called you to do. It's an everyday work. It's an everyday battle. I like this scripture. Philippians 2.13 says this. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is at work at you, in you. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to make you want to do it. And he wants to give you the ability to do that. Even if it's something you don't want to do right now, even if it's a sin you don't want to give up, if that sin might be, I hate this person right here and I will never forgive that person. Even if it's something like that, God is working in you to give you the desire to do the right thing and to give you the ability to do the right thing. We need both of those, don't Because there's some stuff I just don't want to do. And, and, you know, and I've been in this service of Christ thing for a long time now. And there's still some stuff I don't want to do. 
that God is working in me to change my desires and to give me the ability to do what pleases Him. The Bible sets a high standard for us to live by. It's not a, it's not a worn out book of, of controversy and contradiction and the, the demeaning of people. That's not what it's about. It challenges us to make some tough decisions. And in return, it, it shows us how we can experience real joy in this life. Not because it's a book of magical incantations, but because it is true the Word of God. Because it, when we do what God tells us to do, it brings joy into our lives. Some of the obstacles that people have to the Christian faith are intellectual, and some of the obstacles that people have to the Christian faith are of the heart. And God has answers for both of those. If you have intellectual questions about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, uh, I say keep examining, keep investigating. Truth can stand up to scrutiny, but be fair about it. And if you say, look, I, I accept the authoritative nature of Scripture, but, but I'm just not sure I want to do it. God can help you there too. He can change your heart. He can work in you to give you the desire and the power. He can help you. He can change any heart that is given to him, any heart that says, God, I, do, I, I really want to turn it over to you. I just don't think that's possible, so, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. He can give you the desire to obey and the power to obey. Don't let a misunderstanding of the Bible or a misunderstanding of the power of God stand in the way of your experiencing God's greatest gift, which is eternal life and life to its fullness on this planet. That's what God wants for you. I didn't say a life without problems. Life without problems is not possible in this broken world that we live. Life without pain is not possible in this world of sin that we live in. But a full life is possible. A life of joy is possible. A life of, of fulfillment is possible, but only through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I know you're here, and I thank you for that. There's a lot of things we don't understand, and some things we probably never will understand. But give us the grace to ask, to listen, to hear, to trust, to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.